Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask if you would to turn in your copy of Scripture to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're continuing in our series, uh, Guard the Gospel from the book of 1 Timothy. We've come to this section of Scripture where Paul gives Timothy some specific instructions for what it looks like to be a minister of the gospel. He is focused on the doctrine and the conduct of the person who would be the servant of Christ. I draw your attention to two verses first before we read the entire text. If you look at verse 6, Paul says to Timothy, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and having and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And then down in verse 16, keep a close watch on the, on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So you can see in verse 6 and 16, they're like bookends. Paul introduces this particular section where he's emphasizing Timothy's approach, his calling, what he's supposed to do, and then he closes it up with a reminder that is similar in theme and in focus to what it is that Timothy's responsibility is to be. In fact, this entire section is focused on who it is that's going to be the servant of Christ. In particular terms, the person who's going to be the servant of Christ is a preacher and teacher of the gospel. As I was thinking about this particular text and this sermon series and dwelling on this and, and, and being mindful of this, I, I thought about all of those examples that I could share with you of pastors and church leaders who have fallen and who have failed to keep this particular passage of Scripture in mind. I thought about coming up with an illustration or, or reading one of those stories or talking about one of those situations out there where a pastor or a ministry failed because they didn't keep sound doctrine or they didn't pay attention to their behavior and the way that they were supposed to live. In some ways, that would be an appropriate way to begin this sermon. But the problem is, I'm not responsible for those pastors out there, or for those churches, or for those ministries. I'm responsible for this pastor here. And so, I'm going to invite you to listen to a sermon that is not directly for you. It is, and we're going to come to some applications for all of us as a church. But I'm going to invite you to listen to a sermon that I'm going to be honest with you, I'm preaching to me. If you're here and you're called to ministry, this sermon is directly for you. If you're a young minister, if you've got somebody at home that's watching, uh, this this message will be on Facebook and YouTube. You know somebody's in ministry. I, I pray that this message might be an encouragement and a challenge to them. But for those of us that are in the room, just recognize I'm allowing you to listen in to a sermon that I'm preaching to myself. And with that said, I'd like you to pray for me as I do that, not just as I preach this sermon to me, but as I try to apply this sermon day in, day out in my own life. With that said, there's one calling. There's one calling here, and it's to serve Christ. Notice the text. If you put these things before the brothers, what are these things? These things about apostasy and the gospel and clear clear teaching. You will be what? A good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do, he says, with irreverent or silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise 
for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The one calling that I have that any minister of the gospel has is to quite simply be a good servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant there in verse 6 is the word translated to akonos. It's not used in the technical sense or office sense. He's not saying to Timothy, you're a deacon. He's saying to Timothy, your responsibility is to serve. Now, one of the things that helps us as we're thinking about a transition in leadership here with elders and deacons and some of those, those, those ideas that I've put forth before and we'll continue to share with you about what that means, just as a reminder, the responsibility of the pastor or the elder is to serve the church. Serve the church through the ministry, the service of the Word and prayer. It's not that there's a tremendous difference in authority in the sense of what is responsible for the person who's to preach and teach. He's still to serve. The idea is serving. It's not ruling. It's not dictating. It's not making all the decisions. It's serving. That's the emphasis. And that's what Paul puts before Timothy. And he says, your calling is to what? Serve Christ. That's true of all of us, but in particular true of those that would preach and teach the gospel. Serve Christ. There are two motivations for this service. The first motivation is a personal motivation. It's to be a good servant of Christ. Good, meaning that word could mean beautiful. It could mean advantageous. It's essentially letting us know that the responsibility of the servant of Christ, the minister of the gospel, to be a good servant, he's going to put into practice all of these things that Paul is going to teach on. There's a personal motivation. I want to be a good servant of Christ. I want Christ, when He recognizes me and when He recognizes those of us that are ministers of the gospel, when we stand before Him, I want Him to acknowledge that I, as, best I did, as best as I could and as best as we could, we faithfully communicated the gospel and lived consistently with the expectations of the gospel. There's a personal motivation. There's also an eternal motivation for being a good servant of Jesus Christ, and that's verse 16. It's the salvation of others. Paul puts it this way. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, Paul is not being consistent with himself. He's not saying that good works mean that we're saved. He's not talking about a works-based salvation. In the context... What he's dealing with or been dealing with is false teaching. Remember in section, uh, the first part of section chapter 4, that first paragraph, he was dealing with apostasy. Those who rejected the gospel turned away from the gospel. So Paul's making a clear distinction between those who hold the gospel and those who do not hold the gospel. In other words, false teaching versus sound doctrine. So what Paul's emphasis is, is that 
those who hold the sound doctrine and those whose lives are consistent in behavior and character with the doctrine that they teach, that's the life and the ministry that results in gospel preaching and in salvation. Listen, when there's false teaching, false teaching does not bring you to faith in Jesus Christ. False teaching that would be prosperity gospel doesn't bring you to faith in Jesus. It brings you to a place where maybe you get you think you get more by, uh, by putting faith in God. No, but that's not the gospel. Teaching that undercuts the authority of Scripture is not the gospel. It's false teaching. And so salvation is not present in that message that's false or that's unsound. So what Paul's saying is, sound teaching along with a life that's lived consistently is the life that brings salvation to hearers and salvation to and through a church. Essentially what Paul is arguing is this. The minister of the gospel who holds sound doctrine and lives in a way that's consistent is the minister of the gospel and is the kind of church that will be a gospel-oriented witness in its own community and the community around it. In other words, if we want to be a church that does live out our mission, leading our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus, then let me say this. I've got to be this kind of pastor that Paul talks about. And we've got to be a church that expects this kind of pastor to be their pastor, their preacher, their teacher, their communicator of the gospel. So there are two motivations. Now let me look at, show you the six practices that Paul expects of Timothy to put this expectation in place, this calling to live it out. There's six of those, and we'll walk through these pretty quickly. The first one is this, teach sound doctrine. The minister of the gospel, the good servant of Jesus Christ, is to teach sound doctrine. These are some of the phrases Paul used in this paragraph. He says, put these things before the brothers. Command and teach them. Be trained in the words of faith and of sound doctrine. He talks about those things that you know, those things that you have followed. Don't ignore those things. Put them in front of the congregation that you're responsible for. So my obligation as your pastor, as your primary communicator, is to teach sound doctrine. And if I don't teach sound doctrine, you have every right and responsibility as a church to call me out on the false teaching that I, that I speak and teach. One of the reasons I don't think it's tremendously helpful for us as pastors to call out names and point out a lot of false doctrine out there is because most of that doesn't affect those of us in here. Now, if false teaching is present in our church, I have a responsibility to call it out. And there's a Sunday school teacher that's preaching and teaching or teaching something that is false. I have a responsibility to call that out. If some of those in my congregation are listening to somebody on television that are false, I have a responsibility to call those out. But in here, it's my responsibility to teach clear and sound doctrine. To make sure that what I say to you is consistent with what the Scripture says. That's one of the reasons we're going through on Wednesday nights, our doctrinal study. We're going to dive into the doctrine of God proper beginning this Wednesday. We'll spend a few weeks talking about the doctrine of God. We'll take somewhat of a break during part of the summer with that, and then we'll pick right back up in the fall and continue moving forward talking about theology. Why why do we do that? Because, folks, we need to understand what Scripture teaches so that we can identify and be attentive to when we hear something that is false. Some of you are here in this congregation because in congregations you came from in other places, you weren't hearing truth. Oh, it's my responsibility to teach sound doctrine. 
sound doctrine that is true. Sound doctrine that is consistent with what the Bible says about love. And last week while we were gone, I had a chance to do some reading. And I, I read a book entitled Character Matters. And it's, it's one pastor's kind of focus on the fruit of the Spirit and how the fruit of the Spirit should be borne out in the life of the minister. How the follower of Jesus, the pastor, should bear the fruit of the Spirit in his own ministry. And he said this, he said, Love must never be pitted against the truth. The two are sweet friends. A loving pastor who abandons sound doctrine doesn't really love at all. He's like a doctor who greets his dying patient with a compassionate smile, but withholds the very medicine that could save his life. Truth, and especially the truth of the gospel, is our only hope of eternal life. One of the reasons there's such a distinction between churches that preach the gospel and don't is because a lot of churches that don't preach the gospel, they do so because they're trying to be nice to everybody around them. They want everybody to, to like them. They want to express the love that they believe they're exhibiting in their behavior toward others by welcoming all. And folks, let me just say this. We welcome all. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what your beliefs are, what your behavior is. You are welcome to come gather with us every time we meet and every time we worship and every time we preach and every time we praise. But there is a distinction. The distinction is that the truth of the gospel says all of us are sinners and all of us need salvation that is present only through Jesus Christ. There's no other way to heaven. We don't get there by good works. We don't get there by good deeds. We don't get there by nice smiles and good behavior and welcoming everybody with love, loving arms and saying, okay, it doesn't matter what you do with your life. You just come on in and we'll accept you just like you are. Now, Jesus accepts, but He changes the truth of the gospel says that we need to hold on to sound doctrine. And it's my responsibility to say what the Bible says about all sort of issues, whether it's sin issues or salvation and forgiveness issues. Timothy's first practice here that Paul emphasizes is to teach sound doctrine. He gives another practice. He says in verse 7, avoid myths and controversies. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. That word silly is literally old wives' fables, old wives' tales, things that don't make any sense, things that, that are uncertain, uh, irreverent, or, or is the term for um, uh, irreverent myths, things that, that don't fit the gospel. They're not, they're not oriented to sound doctrine. Notice what he says, have nothing to do with them. Yes, the pastor is to address false teaching. Paul did a fair amount of that in 1 Timothy. He had noted earlier in chapter 1 how he excommunicated some people from the church who were elders probably teaching false doctrine. He, he spoke to Timothy in, earlier in chapter 4 about making sure that false teaching wasn't present in the church and not to let those speak and teach who were teaching false. And then he goes on to say, avoid myths and controversies. What's his point? His point is that a lot of false teaching is something that we just shouldn't get involved in whatsoever. Avoid myths and controversies. I remember as a Bible college student, uh, diving into the more contentious theological issues that we wrestled with at Bible college and at seminary. And let me tell you something, you can take a Bible college student and you can put him on different sides of a theological issue and we could debate for hours the finer points of technical theology. 
And sometimes that's a distraction from the gospel. A lot of times people are going to spew things that are just absolutely ignorant. And all you have to do to, 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 uh, to see that is scroll through Facebook. You're going to see some people who post some things and spew some things and like some things and share some things. And if you're really honest with yourself as you read that, you're like, man, that is messed up. That's weird. That's wrong. That, that's, that's not helpful. In fact, there were some friends of, of mine that, that developed a, a Facebook group where they called out a lot of these false teachers. And they'd spend a lot of time kind of debating and dividing and arguing back and forth uh, on all that. And, and I think about three times over the last 12 years or so, I've responded in that particular Facebook group. And, and the reason I don't respond any more than that is I don't have time. I don't have time to go back and forth on social media debating and defending and arguing and, and dividing over issues when, there's a, when, when it's not important. Here's what Paul's saying. And, and I don't think he had in mind social media. They didn't have Twitter and Facebook in the first century world. Maybe they were better off for, for that. But I, I think the implied implication... For us as followers of Jesus, particularly ministers, it's not to get caught up in all of the debates and myths and controversies. That's really what a lot of them are. They're myths and controversies that are out there that have little to no bearing on what happens in this congregation, particularly as we spread and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the pastor, he's pretty much to avoid that. Avoid myths and controversies. What does that look like in a practical sense? Let me tell you, if we're going to hire somebody in ministry here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, we're going to take a look at their social media feeds. We're going to try to find out what are the things they argue about? What are the things they post? What are the things they say? What are the things they're controversial about? And, and pastors and churches should be cognizant of that. Should be aware of not getting involved in little mythological or debates that, that, don't, don't, that don't have any pertinence on the gospel. And some of our questions can go there. I mean, we want to dive in and understand the text and be clear. Sometimes we can go a little too far. Paul says simply, avoid myths and controversies. Thirdly, as far as an application or a practice for the minister of the gospel, toil and strive for godliness. Notice verses 7 through 9. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value... Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That the godliness is something that is preferable or that is beneficial for this life, but certainly for the life to come. The word training there is exercise. It's the word we get our word gymnasium from. In the Greek culture, there were, there were, athletics was a huge value. The Olympics came from Greece. And those who would train for the Olympics would train their bodies to be able to run long distances or short distances or throw heavy items. They would train in order for that. And that's the same word Paul uses there for training or for exercising. He says that training your body is of some value. So he's not saying don't exercise, okay? Maybe we need to hear that more as an application than a, than a, than a possibility, He's not saying don't exercise, but he's saying training your body is of some value in the athletic sphere, but training your soul and your life toward godliness has value in this life and also in the life to come. He says if you're going to value 
physical exercise than value spiritual exercise, godliness. And he uses words like this. He says, toil and strive. Toil and strive. That's working hard. That's giving every bit of energy we have. Look at this in verse 10. For to this end, what is this end? This end of striving for godliness. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Toil and strive. It's like giving every last ounce of energy to that particular effort. Some of you know what that's like when you when in exercise or in work, or in raising a child, you have stretched your energy to its last measure of capacity. Right? Some of you have been there. What Paul is saying here is this is the end to which we strive. We're to toil and strive toward godliness. We toil and strive toward godliness. Why? Are we to toil and strive toward godliness? Why are we to exercise and train ourselves toward godliness? Why? Look at verse 10. Because we have set our hope on the living God. The reason all of us, and not just the minister, this is application for all of us, the reason we're all to toil and strive toward godliness is because we've set our hope on God. We have known that there is something beyond this world. Our hope on the living God, that's to distinguish Him from false gods, from false ideologies, from the polytheistic faith of the day in which Timothy lived. It also is a distinguishing statement from all the deities and religious systems in which we live. We've set our hope on the living God, the one true God, the one who will always be the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. This isn't universalism. Paul is not saying that God somehow saves everyone everywhere. It's not his point. He's saying the living God is the Savior. That's his definition. It's who He is. It means that God is able to save anyone and everyone wherever they are. God is universally the Savior of men. There's no other way for people to be saved other than through the living God. And then he qualifies it by saying, especially of those who believe, meaning that the means to be saved by the God who is the Savior is to put faith and trust in Him as Lord and Savior. What that means for us practically in terms of this idea of godliness and how we live out our lives is to reflect on the fact none of us are beyond the grasp of God to save us. Some of you have grandchildren and children. You have neighbors and co-workers. You have friends. You have people around you that you're concerned about their soul. Some of you, like me, have been praying for some of those on your salvation prayer list for months, weeks, years. And sometimes we have a tendency to lose heart and say, are they really, could they really be saved? Listen, we toil and strive toward godliness. We set our hope on the living God who is the Savior The Savior of those who would believe. Meaning that no one is outside of His capability to save. That's Paul's point here. He's emphasizing to Timothy, Timothy, why you live for godliness, why you preach for godliness, it's because the gospel of God and the God of the gospel is able to save that pagan who's out there living an absolutely reprobate life, a life of wickedness and depravity. God can save him or her. God can save the false teacher that's dwelling in your church. God can save the religious hypocrites. God can save the person who's heard the gospel and rejected the gospel. He can save the person who's never heard the gospel and just needs the opportunity. God is the Savior of those who would believe. 
That's why we're to toil and strive for godliness. There's a glorious motivation there. A fourth practice, Paul says to Timothy, set an example. He goes on, command and teach these things. Just as a reminder, commanding and teaching these things means that it's not just my responsibility to live this, it's my responsibility to teach this, and your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to live this out as well. We'll get to that in the application in a moment. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Set an example. Don't be despised for your youth, Paul says. Timothy was probably in his late 20s or early 30s, which would have made him younger than some of the other elders in that church community. And so he's basically saying, don't let someone look down on you because of your age. Rather, live in a way that sets an example in your behavior. Maturity then is determined not by the numbers of years on your life, but by the quality of the conduct of your living. Does that make sense? He's saying be spiritually mature, not reflective of the age, physical age that you have. I know some people that are godly in their behavior and they're young. There's some people that are godly in their behavior that are older than me. I know some people that are older than me that are not very godly in their behavior. Age itself isn't a determiner of spiritual maturity. Paul says set an example. Set an example in these specific ways. I could preach a whole sermon on this. In fact, I need to preach a whole sermon to myself on this. So you pray for me as the Lord deals with me about verse 12 in my own life. Set an example for the believers in what? In speech. You get the best of me on Sunday mornings. Or most of the time you get the best of me. Meaning that you see me and hear me communicate to you from God's Word. But Paul's not just saying, set the believers an example when you preach. He's saying, set the believers an example in all of your speech. Set the believers an example in conduct, behavior, in love. The primary way that we're supposed to live our lives, I'm to love you. I'm to love people who are lovable and godly. I'm to love people who are difficult and not. Set the believers an example in love. In faith, not just in adherence to the doctrines, he's talked about that, but in believing God, believing that God will come through, believing that God will intervene, believing God for His promises and His truth and His ability to save, and in purity. He specifically added purity because the Greek world was a very impure, pagan, sexually immoral society. Ephesus was known for that, as was Corinth and other places throughout the Greek world. And Paul essentially is saying that Timothy, you as a pastor, can be an effective pastor if your life is lived inconsistently with the morality that is described and expected in the pages of Scripture. He says, set the believers an example in all these areas. I'm thankful that Paul didn't say be perfect in all of these areas. Because that would be problematic for Timothy and for me and for a lot of other ministers and pastors. But we're to set an example. It means we're to be careful about the way that we think and what we say and what we do. And believe me, this is a convicting passage of Scripture. I'm just going to give you a heads up on an application. I'd ask you to pray for me about this. I talked with an accountability partner of mine. We talked earlier this week. I talked with folks here at our church, uh, some other ministers on staff. And this is something we ought to be careful about. Set an example for the believers in all of these areas of life. Paul moves on, verse uh, the fifth 
specific practice is be devoted to your calling. Look at the next verse, verse 13. Until I come, devote yourself. It it means focus on, be attentive to. Be attentive to what? Be devoted to, be attentive to. It's one of those phrases that's like, okay, let's get our attention right. Be attentive to what? The needs of the church. Be attentive to other people. Be attentive to worship preferences. Be attentive to the heating and air in the church. Be devo- no, he says, be devoted. Notice what he says. What's the phrase he says? Be devoted to, till I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. He's not saying ignore all these other items that, that may be issues for us in the congregation. What he's saying is the power and authority that comes to bring change in the lives of people is not about all of those secondary things. Be devoted to what? The public reading of Scripture. In the Old Testament, they would stand when they read Scripture. And in different times in the Old Testament, they stood for hours while Scripture was being read. He's indicating, Paul is indicating to Timothy, that the power and authority of communicated Scripture doesn't rest in the ability of the communicator to preach and teach. Skill and giftedness is important, but it's not primary. What's primary? Scripture. It's that it comes from God. It is God's spoken word in your life and in my life. Why do we value Scripture here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church? Why do I preach expositionally? Why do we make sure that our music, our songs, are consistent with the Scripture that we teach? Why? Because Scripture changes lives. It's authoritative. You want someone who's lost to become a follower of Jesus? You want someone who's discouraged in their faith to grow in their faith? They need to be around Scripture. You want to grow in your own personal walk with Christ? Read Scripture. So Paul says, be devoted to this. This is what you're to focus on. The reading of Scripture. Exhorting. That means encouraging the believers to put Scripture into practice. Teaching. That means expounding it. Making sure that it's clear and it's understandable. Be devoted to that. And he says in verse 14, Do not neglect the gift which you have, which was given to you by the prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Essentially, Paul makes the connection of Timothy's giftedness to preach and teach the gospel with uh, that ordination ceremony when the council of elders laid their hands on him and affirmed the ministry giftedness in Timothy's life. In one sense, being devoted to the ministry, the calling to read read Scripture, teach it, and exhort Scripture is an indication to do that in in, 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 in a uh, plurality, in ministry under a plurality of elders. It's a picture of saying, okay, Timothy, these men affirmed your ministry. The reason you're responsible is because these have affirmed your ministry. It's a, it's a form of accountability, a form of protection, as I've argued before, but it's also an affirmation of calling. That's why when we do ordination, and we've done that with deacons, we've done that with ministers, the ordination is underneath a particular council who makes sure that that person has a a faithful testimony of calling, but also understands Scripture and understands the Gospel. And that happened in Timothy's life. Serving as a reminder, as an accountability, to be devoted to the primary aspect of what he was supposed to do in ministry. Let me give you the final practice that that Paul gave to Timothy here. He said, be attentive to character and creed. 
Be attentive to your behavior and your belief. Be attentive to your devotion and to your doctrine. Notice how he words this. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Make sure it's something you continue to do over and over again because in doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Aaron Menikoff wrote this in that book I referenced earlier. He said, we know healthy churches need good doctrine. Piety is worthless without a deep, abiding, and orthodox teaching. Churches will only be as strong as their doctrine is sound. This is why Paul told Timothy to raise up solid teachers of the faith. It's why Jude appealed to believers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Without sound doctrine, churches are like sailboats without a sail. They're sure to one day crash on the rocks of unbelief. Good church doctrine and good church structure are simply non-negotiable. We need them if our churches are going to be healthy. But let's never forget, healthy churches need healthy pastors. They need men who don't just teach about the fruit of the Spirit, but who abound in the fruit of the Spirit. To connect it in this text, churches need pastors who are not only paying attention to the soundness of what they teach, but they're paying attention to the purity and the righteousness and the holiness of what they say, how they say it, how they behave. So, let me give you three very specific applications as we close the service. Remember, this is a sermon I was preaching to me. Okay? Here's application number one. Would you pray for me and your other ministers on staff? A number of years ago, I started what was called a pastor's prayer team at the church. I would send a weekly update on the sermon that I was going to preach for that week and ask for some specific prayers. Uh, Actually, I put that in a group on my Microsoft Outlook account. And for whatever reason, some things changed with Microsoft Outlook. I lost the group and I lost those email addresses that I, that, uh, of those people that committed to pray for me. So a very specific application is this. If you'd like to pray, I know you pray for me. I hear that. You tell me that. If you'd like specific prayer updates uh, each week before my sermon, and maybe a specific way you can pray for me practically, a very simple thing you can do is put your name and your email address on the tear tab and hand it to me as you leave. And I'm going to start a new group to make sure that I send that out regularly. It's a form of accountability for me, but it's also a specific way that you could pray for me on a weekly basis. That's application number one. Application number two is this. Would you apply to your own life sound doctrine and faithful teaching? Paul says here, command and teach these things. The implication is that this is a sermon for Timothy, but it's also a sermon for the church. The type of behavior and belief that we're to have, our conduct and our creed, our doctrine and our devotion should match. You should believe the right things, but you should also behave the right way. I want to ask you to seriously consider your life in light of what the Bible teaches and how you're behaving. Are you consistent in that? Are you learning more deeply what it means to follow Jesus and applying that in a daily relationship with Jesus Christ? Third, here's a third application. Would you believe God? Would you believe God by sharing the gospel and praying for others to put their faith in Jesus? Folks, the whole point of having sound teachers in their doctrine and their behavior is the salvation of sinners. The whole point. It's wonderful 
if we have a great gathered body of believers where we celebrate and sing and praise. It's wonderful. It's wonderful for you to show up on Wednesday nights and learn the deeper truths of biblical doctrine and, and dive into a clear understanding of biblical teaching. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. It's fantastic for us to celebrate what God's blessed us with financially and ministerially and, and across our church health. It's wonderful. But do you realize the whole point of that? And so the lost people will hear the gospel and those who don't yet know Jesus will come to faith in Jesus. The reason we're here and the reason God left us behind is not so that we could be glorious testimonies and examples to our own doctrinal fidelity. The reason God left us here and put us here as a church is because He gave us a message, a message of the gospel that will bring salvation to children that are in Awana and children that are in Sunday school and teenagers that are in school systems where they're, where they're unclear about what the truth is and to co-workers who have yet to put their faith in Jesus and to neighbors who are, are not walking with God and to the nations who have never heard the gospel. The reason God put us here is because He gave us a mission to spread the good news of Jesus. Yes, we should be concerned about church health. Yes, we should be concerned about conduct and fidelity and righteousness in the way that we behave. But why? Why? Because the gospel saves. And you know somebody who needs the gospel. So would you pray and share the gospel with those who need salvation? Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Listen, if we're going to be a healthy church doctrinally and in the way that we behave, I want to be a healthy church that proclaims the gospel so that people continue to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ here. Amen. Stand with me, if you will. Our Father, we come to you in this moment. We recognize, Lord, our flaws and our failures as I have studied this text and now preached on this text. Father, I am reminded of how far I fall short. Forgive me. Lord, I'm thankful for Your Gospel. I'm thankful for the truth of Scripture. I'm thankful that my hope does not rest in the quality of my behavior. I'm thankful that my hope does not rest in my own righteousness. I'm thankful that my hope rests firmly and is established certainly in the Gospel of Your Son, Jesus Christ. His death on the cross, His taking my place, His resurrection so that I could have life. And Lord Jesus, I put my hope and my trust in You. I pray, Lord God, that you would help me to live consistently with what Paul expected of Timothy here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Help me to put into practice these things. Help me to be faithful to you doctrinally and faithful to you in my behavior. And Father, I pray that as I seek that and as we seek that as a congregation of believers, pray, Lord God, that we would be a lighthouse community that spreads the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. I pray, Lord, for those families pray for those children, those teenagers, those, those adults who are far from God, those people that we're connected with on a regular basis that don't yet know Christ. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would burden our hearts for their salvation, that you would bring us to our knees in intercession for their souls, and that you would open our lips to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Him. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.